The parable that we are going to look at this evening reminded me about those times of trying to second guess the petrol uh, gauge. And uh, we'll see that the main point of this parable is that spiritually speaking, there are a lot of people today running on empty. So if you're one of them, welcome. And I, I really do believe that there's a fantastic word of encouragement, but also of warning in this parable for us this evening. And uh, as I said, the problem is there are a lot of people running on empty, uh, and even worse, they're trying to use everybody else's fuel rather than filling up their own tanks. Now, as we've done each week uh, in this little series on the parables, we need to just take a few minutes to put this parable into context. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, or there's a Bible at the end of each pew, why don't you get hold of that, open it up, and just come with me into um, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, chapters 24 and 25. The parable that we're looking at is in a section known as the Olivet Discourse. And it, it's quite well known, and you may have read about this. It, it's found, the parallel chapters, if you want to check it out for yourself, would be in Mark 13 and Luke chapter 21. And sometimes it's really useful to do a little bit of a harmony of the Gospels and to be able to put all of this together. But basically, Jesus is, again, responding to some questions that are being asked of him. And, and these questions are coming from the disciples, his closest friends, And they're talking to him about when is he going to come back and usher in the end times. And uh, in Matthew 24 and verse 3, uh, he says uh, this to them. uh, They say to him, tell us, when these things, will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They wanted to know, when is Jesus coming back? A lot of people today want to know when he's coming back, I always remember Tony Campolo saying to me, uh, I'm not on the uh, uh, arranging committee, so I don't know the dates and times, I'm on the welcoming committee. So that's fair enough, isn't it? Well, Jesus, if you look through the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 24, he answers their question in some pretty uh, strong detail. And then he gives an object lesson. He talks about a fig tree, cites example of the way people are living in the days prior to the flood. And he compares the fut- his future coming, his return, to a thief coming in the night. In other words, it'll be unannounced, it'll be a big surprise. And then beginning in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 24, he begins to tell a series of four parables, four stories to illustrate how the disciples are to live in light of the fact that they don't know when Jesus is coming back. So he wants to be very practical with them. He wants to say, look, you, you don't know when I'm coming I don't know when I'm coming Only the Father knows when I'm coming back. But in the meantime, fellas, you need to live like this. The first parable that he tells is of the wicked servant and his master. The second is the one that we're going to look at tonight, the parable of the ten virgins. The third is the one we usually refer to as the parable of the talents. And then Jesus concludes this Olivet discourse with the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, with that that context in mind, I want you to open up your Bibles. Duncan's going to come, and he's going to read for us from Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Thanks, Duncan.
As the pastor said, this evening's reading is from Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, and it's, called, it's titled, The Parable of the Ten Virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, There will not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were gone to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Amen. Yeah, thanks, Duncan. Before we go any further, let's just briefly pick up something I mentioned in passing last Sunday night. Um, It's to do with Jewish weddings, okay? The fact is, Jewish weddings are nothing like our weddings. And I alluded to this, first century Jewish weddings uh, were incredible. And, And this parable involves a wedding, so it's important that we just need to understand the, the, the process that's involved here and why uh, Jesus is using this uh, story and why it would have resonated with those who were listening to him in, in that first century context. Now, a Jewish wedding basically consisted of three phases. And uh, phase one was the engagement. That was what would happen. The fathers of the bride uh, and the groom basically got together to negotiate the terms of the marriage. Now, this is really important, okay? It included the price to be paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride. It's a shame this isn't done these days, isn't it? Because there's many a father of a bride, or a bride who has been sat here right now thinking, flip me, if only. It's important that we understand this, because marriage back in those days wasn't just about lovey-dovey, oh, I fancy him and he's really nice. It was every sense an agreement between two individuals, but a financial agreement between two families. You must understand that as you look at this context. There's a business deal going on here. It's very important. So phase one is the engagement. Phase two is the betrothal, uh, in which the bride and groom, this is mad, I tell you. Imagine this in the 21st century. The bride and groom exchange vows. They become legally married, but no hanky-panky occurs. Okay? They didn't live together or consummate the marriage. As I once said to my father, what happens when a person constipates their marriage? But there we go. The husband would literally at that point go off and prepare a family home. 
It was at that point he would go, and probably he would go to his own parents and the home that he grew up in, and he'd build an extension. And that's the, that's the way it worked. And so he'd go and he'd do that. And then, phase three. Phase three, when that home was ready and approved by the father of the groom, the groom would go to the house of the bride in this kind of ceremony that would take place. He'd retrieve her and bring her back to the house for phase three, the wedding feast. This is where it all kicked off. And the procession from the house of the bride to the house of the groom usually took place at night. You can imagine it, can't you? It'd be beautiful. And everybody going along, accompanied by flaming torches, carried by the bridesmaids. None of this, you know. Ed Sheeran playing in the background and all of that. This was a riotous party in the middle of the night. It was absolutely brilliant. So as I mentioned last week, the wedding feast was the grandest of all parties. It lasted a week. Even if you didn't have much money, you would make sure you ploughed in as much as you possibly could into making sure that the bride and groom had the time of their lives. Now, that, that's the context. There's, there's a wedding going on. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on the details of the parable because, as I pointed out previously in this series, one of the things that we've got to avoid with parables at all cost, is over-analyzing them. I've heard some stupid sermons over the years, and I'm sure you have as well. I've probably preached half a dozen or so of them myself. But some of the things that you read in commentaries about the parables, the temptation is to give meaning to every little detail in the parable. So this week, <laughs> I was reading one or two commentaries, uh, commenting on different things, trying to analyze things. and It just takes you away from the main point of the parable. So, for instance, one commentator uh, was going on and on about the fact that the bridesmaids were virgins. And he was saying that they represent Christians who are pure and of good moral character. And I thought, you don't know the Christians I know, pal. But there we go. There's nothing in this parable at all that leads you to draw that conclusion. And you, you've probably sat under ministry over, you know, time. You, you may have heard people speak even at conferences. And you may have read stuff, and the problem is you get this kind of minutiae of detail, and you forget that Jesus is telling a story. He's just telling a story. Because he wants the people that are there in the audience to understand exactly what he's getting at. He doesn't want them to be confused here. He wants to communicate something quite clearly. And so he starts speaking. Now, like we often find in Jewish literature, the main point of the parable is found in the middle of the story. In this case, the main theme of the parable is found in verses 8 and 9. Oh, there's the three stages I was talking about, engagement, betrothal, and the wedding feast. Here's verses 8 and 9. The foolish bridesmaids say to the wise bridesmaids, remember the foolish ones ran out of fuel. All right, they didn't have enough gas for their camping stoves. The wise ones had been out gone to millets, got spare, they were fine. Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going to die. But the wise answered, saying, there'll not be enough for us and for you. You go to the dealers, in other words, go to the shops and buy your own. That's what they're saying to them. You can't have any of ours, go and get your own. So here's how we can sum up the parable in a very, very simple way. I can't live on somebody else's fuel. That, that, if you want to sum up the parable, that's what it is. I can't live off somebody else's fuel. 
I need to sustain myself. Right? Trevor might well have fish and chips next Friday, with mushy peas, I hope. Right? He can eat that and it will sustain him. I can't live off that. I have to eat that myself. I will have salad. It'll be all right. But you, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't live off somebody else's fuel. Now, although all of God's word is relevant for our lives, and my goal each week is to share messages with Pastor Tim from the scriptures that are important and applicable to our day-to-day lives, I honestly think, as I was praying this week about this message, I think this is one of the most important messages I've probably shared with you for quite a while. So so I just want to ask you, please, listen carefully and consider thoughtfully what I'm about to share with you. This parable is actually one of a set of parables known as kingdom parables because Jesus uses it to describe what the kingdom of God is like. All four of the parables that uh, we've looked at in this series so far are kingdom parables. And as we've seen... Each of those parables deals with some particular aspect of salvation, how a person enters into the kingdom. But quite unlike those first four parables that we studied, which focused primarily on the present spiritual aspect of the kingdom, you'll notice that this parable begins in a different way. This parable begins with the words, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. This is about the future Jesus is dealing with the future aspect of his kingdom. He's teaching his disciples about his future return, a time when he will come and he will usher in his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, because this seems to be out of vogue these days, but I believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, was raised, suffered, bled, and died upon a cross, died for our salvation, was raised the third day, ascended back to heaven, and that he is coming again. Yeah. Because some Christians don't seem to believe that. Mad. So I wonder if you believe that. And I'm asking you honestly. Do you believe that he's coming back? Because if he's coming back, it has implications. It has implications from what Jesus says here that something in the future has a bearing now. Because something's going to happen down the road, I need to do something now. That's hugely important. And that's why he tells this story. It's a very clever way of communicating eternal truth. But then he is the son of God and you'd expect him to be clever, wouldn't you? It's brilliant. It's genius. So it's a parable about the future about the future aspect of the kingdom, but it's a parable primarily about how we live now because of what's coming. So it is definitely, wow, this is definitely a parable for you and me in 2019, right here, right now. This, this appears to be a private discussion with his disciples. You'll notice that the Jewish leaders don't seem to be around. The crowds that had been following Jesus don't seem privy to this conversation. But the parable itself is very, very simple. 
The context, remember, is phase three of the Jewish wedding process. This is the wedding feast, the procession from the house of the bride to the house of the groom. It usually took place at night, accompanied by flaming torches carried by the bridesmaids. It was a big fanfare. Turns out, though, that this dopey bride has got some dopey bridesmaids. Because they haven't all come prepared. Five of them think ahead and think, right, Jewish, this is what we do. We go on this festival, we parade through the streets. We're blinking neck. He lives about half a mile away. That's going to be a bit of a trek. We might make sure that we've got enough oil. So five of them go and get extra oil. Five of them, so busy doing their makeup, they can't be bothered. And that's basically the story that we have. There are five wise bridesmaids and five foolish bridesmaids. Five wise ones take their lamps as well as flasks of oil. Five foolish ones take their lamps, but no oil. So in the Jewish wedding, the bride and her bridesmaids never knew exactly when the groom might come for his bride. That was part of the excitement, part of the anticipation. So in this case, the return of the groom is delayed. And day after day, the bride and her attendants went on with life. You notice that? They made preparations for the wedding during the day, and they slept at night. And all the bridesmaids, both the wise and the foolish, slept at night. Um, no one in the parable is condemned for sleeping. We probably don't uh, want to make too much out of that, but I know that some commentators, you know, go on about, oh, you've got to be careful, you know, you don't sleep and all of that. The danger with all of this is there are some Christians that I meet who are like this. Always looking to see whether Jesus is coming back. And consequently, it mucks up their lives. You ever met a Christian like that? Who are so concerned about the imminent return of the Lord that they do very little else. It does muck up their relationships. It mucks up things that they like to do. They, they, they become so prepossessed with this idea. It's coming, it's coming. I had a, a woman in one of my churches that would literally spend a lot of the day at the front window, watching. Now, we need to be clear here. Scripture teaches that Jesus will return, but it doesn't teach that we don't go about our lives. We, we, we need to work, and to eat, and to sleep. We're not just to sell our possessions and sit around idly waiting for Jesus to return. It's picked up in cartoons and it's picked up in skits on the TV, isn't it? You know, the end of the world is nigh. The Apostle Paul actually had to warn the Thessalonian Christians that, you know, they shouldn't just be idle. He commanded them, you need to work, you need to get on with life. Anyway, back to the Jewish festival that was happening here. The groom arrived to take his bride to the wedding feast. The bridesmaids all woke up, lit their lamps, probably more like torches than, than the kind of oil lamps we're familiar with. But the lamps of the five foolish bridesmaids immediately go out. Why? Because they've got no oil to keep them burning. So what do they do? They do exactly what you and I would do. Hey, bud, can you give me some of your oil? Can I have some of your oil? Brings us back to verses 8 and 9 again. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, There won't be enough for us and for you. 
Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, I don't know about you, when I first read that, I thought, blinky, Eric. They're very kind, are they? I mean, their response is a little bit severe. Our sense of um, fairness. Talked about this, haven't we? Our sense of fairness would say, oh, come on, girls, give them a little bit. Be willing to share your oil. But these young women are obviously wise enough to understand that they had just enough oil to keep their lamps lit for the entire length of the procession. And if they shared that oil with others, the truth would be nobody would have enough oil. By the time the five foolish women go into town and buy the oil and return, the doors to the feast are shut and they're not allowed to enter. Now Jesus uses this parable, like the others in the Olivet Discourse, to make it clear to his disciples that his return is not going to be nearly as soon as they suppose. And like those other parables, this one shows that his return is going to be sudden, it's going to be unexpected because of what seems like a long delay to us. So the big thing is this. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. None of us do. But because of that, we need to be in a state of readiness. So that whenever Jesus does return, we'll be ready. That's a pretty simple message, isn't it? That's it. But how? How exactly are we to make sure we're properly prepared for his return? If Jesus is coming back, how do we live day by day? Well, back to the main message of this parable that we identified earlier. I've got to be ready. I've got to be ready. Me. I can't hope to catch along on the coattails of somebody else. I need to be ready. So please listen. So do you. Each and every one of you sat here and anybody listening to this message online needs to understand that they are personally responsible for being ready. That is a key thing that is so important in this parable. Like the bridesmaids, I need to be fueled up and ready to go. It applies on two levels, doesn't it? Firstly, this is primarily a parable about the future, so it begs the question whether I am like one of the wise bridesmaids who's going to enter into the wedding hall, or am I like one of the foolish bridesmaids who shows up late, only having the door slammed in my face? And as we've seen clearly over the last few weeks, no one can enter the kingdom of God based on their own ability, based on their own achievements, their own successes. You, you can't deserve this stuff. It doesn't work that way. The only way you can enter the kingdom of heaven is to accept the scandalous grace of God that's been offered to you and to me through Jesus Christ. And you have to do that personally. Just because you come and sit in a chapel on a Sunday evening faithfully and give generously in the offering plate, I'm sorry, friend, it doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it that you're ordained and a minister. The truth is here, it is about whether you or I as an individual have trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. 
key thing here is that we must understand the only way to be made ready is to be in right relationship with Jesus. Each person has to make an individual response to the invitation to enter God's kingdom. You can be part of a Christian charity program. You can be involved in uh, doing things that are, are good and, and righteous. But none of it, the Bible says, will get you into the kingdom of heaven. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that parable, this parable, reinforces this idea. It shows us that we can't rely on somebody else's oil to get us into the kingdom. I mean, notice in this parable, all ten women had an equal opportunity to get oil, didn't they? They must have. But only half of them bothered to. And it ended up that only five got in. Now, that's serious. In April 1988, Ivan McGuire, a veteran skydiver, uh, was going to film an instructor and his student. So Ivan jumped out of the plane first to be able to film the other two with a voice-activated camera that was attached to his helmet. All was going well until Ivan reached for his ripcord, only to discover that he'd mistaken the video equipment strapped to his back for a parachute. At that point, the video shows his hands and arms flailing wildly as he descends rapidly to his death. It's all filmed. The incident graphically illustrates two important points that we learn from this parable. Number one, no one else can enter the kingdom of heaven on your behalf. Ivan Maguire died because it wasn't possible for somebody else to wear a parachute in his place. He didn't have a parachute. The instructor and the student both had their own. Ivan didn't. And unless you and I accept Jesus' invitation into his kingdom by personally placing our faith in him, you will die in your sins and never enter that kingdom. Just because you were raised in a Christian home or because you regularly attend church with other people of faith, it's not enough. I told you this was a hard message. But this is the truth of God's word. Another person's faith will not cover you. Just because your grandparents were strong Christians, were involved in, in Christian life. I'm sorry. But please hear me tonight sincerely. They can't do it for you. You can't catch faith like you catch a cold. You can't borrow it from your family and friends. God has no grandchildren. The second point is that you need to understand tonight, sincerely, there comes a point when it is too late. I think we live in a, in a strange world. I meet families to take their loved one's funeral, and sometimes it's almost as if people genuinely think that they've still got time to get right with God, even though they're dead. And of course, certain Christian uh, groups and uh, denominations teach that kind of thing. That there is a purgatory and you can work things out and stuff like that. Bunkum, not biblical, not true. 
I think there comes a point when it's too late. I don't like that, but that's what the Bible teaches. Up until the time Ivan jumped from the plane, he could have put his parachute on and saved his life. But once he jumped, that was it. It was too late. Nobody could do anything for him. It was too late. When the foolish bridesmaids got to the home of the groom, it was too late. Although they said that they wanted in, their actions demonstrated that they really weren't sincere and they'd failed to make the necessary preparations. A lot of people put off a decision about entering the kingdom of heaven, figuring they can do it later. But the Bible's clear. There will come a point in everybody's life when it'll be too late. So can I ask you sincerely tonight, what about you? Because you might think that you've got plenty of time. You might not. Have you made that faith decision have you trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? When Ivan Maguire got on the plane, he wasn't thinking he was going to die that day. But tragically, the very moment his body hit the ground and he died, his eternal destiny was sealed forever. I'll tell you this on the authority of God's word. If I die tonight, mourn me, but rejoice that I know where I'm going. That's the truth. Can you say the same? I pray you can. As sincerely as your pastor, I pray that you can. You see, this is the thing. If you're going to do a series, you can't just bypass some of the more difficult and challenging of passages. This is very clear. Once again this evening, I want to say to you, if you've never entered into the kingdom of God by placing your faith completely in Jesus and what he's done for you, I urge you, don't leave here tonight until you've done that. Pastor Tim and I are here. We'll be quite willing, quite pleased to sit and pray with you. Now, there are others of you sitting here, but smug, because you'll be thinking, well, I have entered into the kingdom of heaven. I am in a personal relationship. So how's this parable relevant for you then, is it? Well, I think it is. Here's the second level on which the parable operates. We're doing all right. Anne, are you going to give me a thumbs up? Or a oh, come on, we're going all right. So, you okay? You still awake? Dave, you still with me? Good stuff, all right. Here's the second level at which this operates, much shorter. Th this particular parable is focused, as we've said, on the future. All of the kingdom parables are relevant, though, for our lives here today. See, being part of the kingdom of heaven, being involved with Jesus, isn't just about anticipating something that's going to happen when I die. Oh, no. The benefits of knowing Jesus are to be enjoyed now. And that's so important. It's about fulfilled living, joyful living, abundant living. It is amazing. It's not just about the future. Blinking heck, do you want to hang on? How long has Trevor been hanging on? Flip. If he's only going to enjoy it when he... Come on. There's no point. You want to enjoy now. That's what it's all about. And I know that for my brother. He has experienced the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. He's accepted him as his Lord and Savior, and he's enjoyed the benefits of that. He's not just going to cash it in when he dies. He's lived it, experienced it, enjoyed it, reveled in it. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who don't seem to be experiencing that. 
And some of them are sat here tonight. And look at your faces. Ooh, you look as if you've been baptised in lemon juice, some of you. Ooh. I tell you, I've got the joy, 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 joy of the Lord. Where? Where is it with you? You know, I've got to be honest. Sometimes, when Pastor Tim and I are preaching and you can hear little whispers going on and after a service there's little conversations and some, some people's faces belie, you know, the, I don't know, the, the feelings they've got. It, it's difficult for us as pastors. And I ask you tonight, well, where is the abundant life then that you are enjoying in Christ? Because we need to experience it now. If it's just something for the future, we are misunderstanding what the whole point of this story is. I'm convinced that the reason that in the most cases we're trying to live our lives on somebody else's fuel is this, this is the cause of the problem. We don't have that intimacy of relationship with Jesus that we need. Our spiritual tanks are running on empty, and instead of taking steps to fill our tanks, we're trying to live off somebody else's tank. You can't do it. When the trials of life come, and Jesus promised they would, people are totally unprepared to deal with them. So we sometimes sit in chapel and grumble and whinge and moan because things aren't the way they used to be or things, I don't like such and such. Well, fine. But the joy of the Lord and the abundance of life in him and that security and fulfillment and significance that we have in Christ, surely that's got to matter. We live in a culture that promises to give us what we want quickly and with as little effort as possible. And we've sold out to it. We go to fast food restaurants or order takeaways to let someone else fill our stomachs with food they've prepared. We go to the car wash and stay in our car while somebody else or a machine washes our car. We go home and turn on our TV sets and then somebody else fill our minds with news and entertainment. And if you're like me, I've got a good wife who waits on me hand and foot. Friends, ironically, about the only area I can think of where we've become less dependent on others over the last 34 years, 30 or 40 years is filling the car with petrol. I remember as a little boy going with my dad to the petrol station and a man in a white coat came out and filled the car for you. Do you remember those days? It doesn't happen anymore. You've got to get out of the car and do it yourself. They make it a bit more convenient because you can pay at pump now. Hurrah. Problem is, it's all carried over into our spiritual lives. We want somebody else to fill us up spiritually. We don't want them to take a lot of time doing it either. We expect to come to church once a week for an hour on a Sunday, let somebody else share their oil with us, and then try to live on that oil for the next week and come back to get some more. Careful, please be careful. Far too many of us don't want to do what's required to fill our own spiritual tanks. It takes hard work, it takes discipline. Filling our spiritual tanks only comes as a result of intentional habits built into our lives. If you want to have your own oil instead of depending on somebody else's, you're going to have to take time. Time to be alone with God, time to be in his word, and time in prayer. 
You're going to have to make time to engage in real biblical fellowship, spending time with fellow believers to study, to pray, to encourage each other. You're going to have to look for opportunities to serve the needs of others in the name of Jesus. Just about coming on a Sunday and sitting down and consuming and then leaving. I do my very best, Tim does his very best, to teach each week, to open God's word so that you and I can study it. But the danger is you're just relying on our oil. I pray God will use it in your lives to help you know him and serve him better. But you need to take that oil and make it your own. You need to meditate on it and apply it. I implore you, please don't rely on my or Tim's oil in order to live your life in the kingdom. I cannot and you cannot live on somebody else's oil. Do you see all of that here? Because that's what this parable is teaching us. So I want to ask you as we close. Seriously, I don't know how long I've got. And you don't know how long you've got. And time does run out. And some of us are on borrowed time, frankly. Because there are things that we've been up to in our lives and we wonder how on earth we're still here. But we have a decision to make. and We can't live off other people's fuel. We have to make a decision for ourselves. So I ask you tonight, friends, sincerely, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Do you know that you are going to heaven? And do you know the joy of abundant life in Christ now? I want you to think about that for a moment. Let's bow our heads as we finish together. I told you it was going to be a tough message tonight and when it's very difficult to preach, but the Lord's laid it on my heart that we should do these parables, and here's one that's very, very direct to us. So I reflect with you on my own life. Gloriously, I have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, but there are times when I have to confess, even as your pastor, I live off other people's oil. Father, I want to repent of that tonight and I want to ask you to help me to get right with you and to be able to draw more upon my relationship with you personally that I might be sustained in my life day by day through that. And what I pray for myself, I pray for everybody in this room who knows you and loves you, that you give us an appetite and a hunger for your word, for spending time with you in prayer, and indeed for spending time with other Christians in fellowship. But Father God, there will be those here tonight who have never accepted you as their Lord and Saviour. They've been running on the fuel they've gotten from other people by association or whatever. And I realise that time might be running out. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to pray for anybody here tonight who's never made that formal declaration of faith, that you might draw them to yourself. That, God, you will not let go of them and that you will bring them to salvation.
thank you for your word, its truth and its application.